Hello, welcome to the podcast, Multiple Bloodsucking Insects, formerly known as Aristotle's Joe, it is now different. Uh, we're here with my friends Kiki and Will. Uh, hey, yo. Hi. Okay, and uh, yeah, this is a podcast where we discuss the crazy stuff that goes on in the political scene, and uh, they will be discussing a certain party. Uh, not one of the two major ones, the different one. Uh, or, or you might call it a third one. So, third parties big gray area in our political landscape, probably because a lot of people do blame them for the pre- for like spoiling elections and giving us presidents like Woodrow Wilson, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump. But regardless of whether you think they're good or not, we're going to agree that fascists aren't good, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty for that. Will, what, what do you think? Do you think fascism is good or not? That's a, that's a tough one. That's a, that's a real tough one. Uh, I'll just get back to you. Um, you want to just say no? Is it an easy thing to do? No, no, I, I don't think it's good. Yeah, okay. Um, so, so yeah, well, we can agree that fascists aren't good, so that, and that brings us to today's topic. A prominent third party is an ideology that can best be described as basically fascism. <laughs> uh, so, this party does not call itself fascism, but it calls itself paleoconservative. Uh, I, I could say that paleoconservatism is basically fascism because it 100% is basically fascism, but I'm going to instead subject my guests and listeners to a brief description of it. So, paleoconservatism is a variety of conservatism aimed at promoting American nationalism, Christian ideals, isolationism, and traditional values. Now, if you aren't a fascist, because I sure hope my guests and listeners, listeners aren't fascists, uh, you probably don't speak the language of fascist, so let me make a translation. American nationalism means hardcore American chauvinism, opposition to all immigration to the U.S., be it legal or illegal, and the belief in the supremacy of the Western world. Christian ideals means evangelical fundamentalist doctrine has made the law of the land and all non-believers must pay. And if that sounds Taliban-y, some Taylor conservatives have actually praised the uh, Taliban because they're so awful. They'll be completely honest about aligning with the Taliban ideologically. Isolationism means opposition to American involvement in war, which is a totally fine position to have when talking about unjust wars like Vietnam, Iraq, or Afghanistan, etc. However, Halo conservatives express this anti-war sentiment through the idea of America first, which is the idea that America matters more than anything else, that we shouldn't be invading Iraq on the fault pretext of helping them, not because the pretext is false, but because paleoconservatives believe we shouldn't ever help out a dirty brown country. Uh, so yeah. And, uh, I, 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 do you guys remember a few months ago when that one neo-Nazi and Kanye West had dinner with Trump? Yeah, I remember, I re- I remember that. Yeah, his name is Nick Fuentes. Uh, and yeah, he... he he actually uh, has called himself a paleoconservative, and his podcast is called America First with Nick Fuentes. Uh, and yeah, he, he just is, he's doing a, he, he used to have like a convention type thing that he does when, C, when like CPAC is going on, and it had a couple members of Congress, some like somewhat prominent far-right people. Now it was like a hotel with like 20 people in it. He's completely fallen. <clears throat> People like that who I'd like to see fail. Because they suck. Yeah, I personally do not agree with a lot of the things that he said. 
Um, do you remember on the Alex Jones podcast where Kanye and Alex Fuentes were all together? Yeah, Nick Fuentes and Alex Jones. Oh, so yeah, Alex Jones and Nick Fuentes. Dude, yeah. I thought the fucking the net and Yahoo thing was like ridiculous. Yes, <laughs> his impression of net and Yahoo sounds like Mickey Mouse, the famously, the famously high pitched voice guy, net and Yahoo, like. Like the the most famous thing about him is that he has a very high pitched voice. Yeah, no, that's the real concerning thing here is how many people saw that and were influenced by that. Yeah, I, the thing is that that might have turned off some people from taking it more seriously. But it might have turned on some people the other way, right? Yeah. Like someone might look at that and be like, "Oh, these guys are right, and everything else is wrong." Yeah. I definitely think, though, I think, like, it, with that Alex Jones podcast, like, I think Kanye, like, lost a lot of steam because he went, he definitely went full uh, mask off. Like, before on the internet, there was a lot of, like, people who were kind of like saying, oh, he has a point, which obviously he didn't, but, but then he went full mask off, he went full, like, pro-genocide, and I think, I think that more or less scared more people off. Yeah. Um, but going back to the phrase America first, it actually has origins in World War II, and I should know that this podcast is inspired by Behind the Bastards, and the episode of that podcast about the birth of American fascism does go into this topic much more deeply, and I recommend that my guests, but more really my listeners, uh, listen to it. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the origins of the phrase America first go back to the Second World War, where an isolationist movement that went by the name America first gained prominence as advocating that the U.S. not enter the war to stop Hitler because Hitler hadn't actually attacked the U.S. at that point. Uh, and that is reflected with a lot of paleoconservatives today, including Nick Fuentes, who currently support the invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin. Uh, so, and the, fi- the final facet of paleoconservative ideology I mentioned, which is traditional values, I mean, that, that refers to all the basic things referred to as traditional values, which is like basically saying, I don't like anybody who's not straight or cisgender, so, yeah. Um, but today, I, I bring all of this stuff up, because today we'll be discussing the Constitution Party, which is a far-right American political party that, despite basically being fascist, once had major party status in the state of Colorado for a brief period. Uh, yeah. Uh, now, I assume neither of you have heard of this party, right? Yeah, no. Yeah, no, no, you are as invested in this kind of stuff as I am. So, yeah, I'm introducing it to you. And I'll start by introducing to you the guy who introduced this party to America, a man named Howard Phillips. Howard Phillips was born on February 3rd, 1941 in Boston, Massachusetts, into a quite ironically Jewish family. Uh, as you know, that he is an evangelical Christian now, uh, and his party is a Christian nationalist party, which is a bit ironic that it's called the Constitution Party, because the Constitution says separation of church and state, which is not something this party supports uh, at all. Um, but yeah, we don't know a lot about Howard's early life, but we do know that when he was in his 30s, he stopped practicing Judaism, and that, that was when he became an evangelical Christian and left the Jewish faith. Uh, but it wasn't just evangelical Christian Christianity that he joined. It was this thing called Christian Reconstructionism, 
which is the idea that society should be reconstructed in the interests of Jesus Christ, and that biblical law should be applied to everyday life. This includes the death penalty for idol worship, adultery, homosexuality, blasphemy, witchcraft, and even murder. I mean, those first few ones, I mean, the death penalty for those is a little extreme, but for murder? I mean, that's just dystopian. Ridiculous, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, in an interview with the Chalcedon Report, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, um, it, it, it's, it's affiliated with the Chalcedon Foundation, again, not sure if I'm saying that right, which is a organization that follows Christian Reconstructionism and is labeled a hate group as Southern Poverty Law Center. And in an interview with this uh, organization, Phillips described his introduction to Christian Reconstructionism, and he said that it, quote, helped to remove the scales from my eyes and motivated me to re-examine every area of my life and conduct. I placed my children in Christian schools, I began tithing, and I launched into an intensive study of the Bible. Uh, now the term removing scales from one's eyes, as gross as it sounds, refers to one opening their eyes to the teachings of Jesus Christ, which most, uh, most uh, Christian Reconstructionists believe Jews have not done. Uh, although I, I wonder uh, what their kind of opinion is on Jews for Jesus. Uh, they're like... Yeah. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, what's your opinion, Kiki, on Jews for Jesus? Um, I, dude, I don't understand how you can, like, take two separate religions and sort of make them, like... Uh, I'll tell you, my rabbi tells me that those people at Jews for Jesus are not real Jews. And I think that's the definition of Jewish is to each person's interpretation. Um, but Jews for Jesus doesn't make sense to me because there's literally a part in Judaism that says, like, there's only one God, it is our God, and that is the only God. And so to say, here's this human being, literally a human being, who lived on Earth 2,023 years ago was born. And he's also God is ridiculous to me because now you're taking monotheism and you're saying, yeah, there's actually two gods or there's one God, but they're the same entity. And that goes against the fundamental structure of Judaism, which is that we only have one God. Yeah, I, I also think it is kind of ridiculous, but primarily because I think that when, when you think about it, uh, the idea that God would go and like through magic, like magically impregnate a woman who's never had sex with his son that sounds like like the kind of thing you'd find on like deviant art <laughs> like right that's, yeah that's that's really weird their argument is that jesus was you know came of two natures and whenever you ask a christian what is your you know evidence that jesus is actually the son of god their answer is always faith and it's like, okay, well, how are you supposed to argue with faith, you know? Yeah. I mean, really, is, that, I mean, is, is that, though, not the, the thing that defines every religion? Because proving that Jesus is God and proving that there is a God is, is both based on faith. Yeah, you're right. But what I'm saying is that that's not an argument you can have. Once you, you know, once people say, oh, it all goes back to God and you just need to have faith that God you know, you can't prove that God exists, and you can't prove that God doesn't exist. But is it not? Is it not more about the teaching and the following of the practice than about the fact that it's true or not? Um, 
depends on who you ask, but I would say the reason that people practice their religion and the reason that these religions have rules is based on a belief in God and that we're doing it for God and so that God will let us into heaven. Um, yeah, okay. Well, let, 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 let's, let's continue here. Uh, so, uh, so Howard Phillips, the founder of this party, he graduated, uh, he graduated from Harvard in 1962, uh, and during his time there, he led the school's student council, where a magazine called The Cross and the Flag praised him as being a, quote, patriot. Uh, now, I should note that this particular magazine, The Cross and the Flag, if it didn't sound like kind of clan-like to you, that's because... Or if it did sound kind of clan-like to you, that's because it was run by the KKK. The KKK ran this magazine that called Howard Phillips a patriot. Uh, and although Phillips did disavow the Klan, uh, there is a bit of an issue when uh, media run by the KKK is talking about how someone is such a cool guy. I mean, disavowing the KKK doesn't really do enough there. Like, you allowed yourself to be praised by these people. That's a problem. No, definitely. It, it, it's sort of a, a, a similar thing with Donald Trump, right? Wasn't he, was he, he was endorsed by the KKK, right? I, I think so. I know he was endorsed by David Duke. Yeah. And so it's the same thing. Like, he'll go on stage and obviously say, oh, I, I don't, I don't like that. But it's like, if they like you, that's what's concerning. Yeah. He gave them a reason. Yeah. Uh, so, so in a, so, so yeah, this particular piece of information about Howard Phillips being praised by a KKK-run uh, magazine, it was sourced from a 2021 article by the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper of Harvard, and it was written by Simon J. Levien called, and it was called the Crimson Clan, which is about the history of KKK activity at Harvard. And in this article, um, it's, it's, it's kind of like, it, I remembered when I was researching this, it was kind of like I, I used one of the sources on Howard Phillips' Wikipedia page, and I think it was like an archive, so it might be hard to find this, but if you can, you can see on this page, like, multiple images of, like, people just, like, out in the open at Harvard in clan outfits, like, and y you can see, um, like, them posing with the statue of John Harvard, who was a slave owner, by the way. Uh, and, and one of the Klansmen was at the top of the statue, sitting on its lap. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Whoa. Uh, kick, kick, uh, I, yeah, there's there's definitely uh, something, there's definitely a big problem when there's, I mean, because the, the Behind the Bastards did, also did a good episode about the origins of the KKK. And considering the fact that Harvard is in Massachusetts, that's kind of ridiculous because, I mean, the KKK was specifically made by like people it was it was founded by people who were like the you know people always some people point out how like the kkk looks like ghosts well the reason for that is because it was originally kind of like a role-playing thing where people were just like kind of like being troll like trolly and dressing up as ghosts and pretending to be the ghosts of dead of uh soldiers of confederate soldiers who died in the civil war it originally wasn't entirely like serious but it became serious and then people died uh, <laughs> why is the leader called the grand wizard do you know that oh it's it's a bunch of weird like like 
proto Dungeons and Dragons type shit. It, it behind the bastards episode goes into that. I'm wondering where was that background noise coming from, or who was it coming? Oh, from? Oh, sorry, that was that was me. Sorry. Yeah, that was definitely Will. Okay, so yeah, um, so the the article mentions that long after Howard Phillips had disavowed the clan, he would later invite a high-ranking member of the Indiana clan to serve with him on a lobbying group's governing board. So that's great. Um, his political career began with his career as a Republican, working in the executive branch, because for just five months, he served as director of the Office of Economic Opportunity, an agency created to help with Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program, now as part of the Nixon administration. The Great Society programs were created as part of Johnson's initiative to fight poverty, and Nixon had promised to undo some of these actions because he was a scumbag. But eventually, Nixon did realize that undoing these programs was just not going to work, and he stopped focusing on that goal. And because Nixon gave up, even though he wanted to do it, Phillips really did not like that, and he resigned in protest because he, he hates poor people, I guess. Uh, so, as will become more evident later, Howard Phillips did not like having promises broken to him. Uh, and that's something to keep in mind. He does not like having promises broken to him. Uh, and... Uh, and even though those promises were unrealistic, he is like, you make that promise to me, you better keep it. I should also note that he was merely the acting director of this Office of Economic Opportunity, that's what it's called. Um, and his appointment by Nixon was not even approved by the Senate, and a district court case ruled that Phillips's five months as director were served completely illegally. Uh, because it was not confirmed. And he was essentially hired by Nixon just to be acting director just so he could dismantle the agency. He was basically just like a tool used by the Nixon administration to dismantle the agency aimed at institute at, at protecting the Great Society programs. So, so yeah, r really bad, bad dude, Richard Nixon. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, after a long career in Republican politics, in 1974, Howard Phillips uh, joined the Democratic Party. Uh, and this was soon after he, his career in the executive branch ended. And he finished fourth place in the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate in Massachusetts. Uh, I think that year, I believe. Um, and despite being a Democrat, he was still very conservative. And the Senate seat he was running for was held by essentially his exact opposite, Edward Brooke, who was a Republican with many liberal views and was also the first African-American to ever be popularly elected to the U.S. Senate. I should note that there were African-American U.S. Senators during the Reconstruction period before the 17th Amendment, and I assume you both know what the 17th Amendment is? More or less. Yes. Kiki, you know what it is? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it, it, it has the direct election of U.S. Senators, and yeah, Howard Phillips was running in the Democratic primary to try and face this Edward Brooke guy who's a liberal Republican in the general election, and he, he came in fourth. He didn't even get close to winning. Um, the, the eventual winner was Paul Songus, who did defeat Edward Brooke, and he was probably more conservative than Edward Brooke. But yeah, Brooke was the first ever African-American to be like actually voted into the U.S. Senate. Uh, but yeah, uh, so in 1974, Phillips founded the Conservative Caucus, which was a conservative advocacy group that he would remain chair of until 2011, which was two years before he passed away. Uh, throughout the 70s and the 80s, he and his organization, the Conservative Caucus, would be prominent figureheads of the 
conservative movement and would oppose certain measures taken by both major parties. Um, Phillips was a staunch opponent of Ronald Reagan's nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor to the Supreme Court because Phillips thought she was too liberal on abortion. He also opposed the Panama Canal treaties and supported Reagan's strategic defense initiative, also known as his Star Wars program. Uh, he also strongly supported lowering taxes and advocated against federal subsidies for activist groups as an effort he deemed defunding the left. Uh, so yeah, yeah, things haven't changed since then, it seems. In addition to his strong, uh, um, uh, in addition to him opposing the nomination of Justice O'Connor, he also fought against Reagan's choice of James Baker as his chief of staff, whom he also deemed too liberal. Um, overall, he was basically a generic conservative activist, and he also opposed free trade, subsidies for, for undocumented immigrants, and LGBTQ rights. But then, something happened that turned him into something more than just an ordinary conservative. Uh, that was after Reagan was term limited and his vice president, who was now the nominee for president, George H.W. Bush, he said six words, and keep in mind, like, this is where I, this is why I mentioned the, like, uh, he doesn't like having promises broken to him. Uh, this is why. Because it was George H.W. Bush while campaigning for president. He said six words that would change Phillips' career for the worse. Uh, yeah. Uh, now, we are going to take a break here for some ads, but we'll be right back after those. And we are back. We just took an ad break, and we're back. So, in 1988... Uh, president Reagan was serving in his final term as president, well, his final year as president before term limits, would finally remove him from the White House. Uh, you could say that that was a miracle that helped make things better, but of course, it didn't because his successor was his own vice president. So, yeah, that didn't make things better. It just meant a piece of shit like Reagan was no longer in the White House. Cause, and, and, and George H.W. Bush was just Reagan, but with all the charisma and personality sucked out of him, with a pure evil still intact. He was given the Republican nomination for president, and during the 1988 Republican National Convention, Bush said those six words I mentioned earlier. They were, I'm going to try to do my best impression of him, and it's going to be terrible. Read my lips. No new taxes. So Bush ended up winning the election in a landslide, and because not everything you say on the camp campaign trail is completely practical and can actually be done by presidents, I mean, like, Joe Biden, like, I mean, he promised, like, a ton of things he, he hasn't done. I mean, that's just normal. That's just how campaigning for president works, is that you say you're going to do things and that you aren't going to end up doing. That's normal. Uh, but this was a real... This was definitely something that angered, like, staunch conservatives to a major degree. Uh, but... I think the fact that I'm, bringing, I'm saying that is kind of uh, a sign. It, it, it kind of implies, and correctly implies, that there were new taxes that were introduced during Bush's first Bush's single term as president. So yeah, um, how do I, are either of you aware of George H. W. Bush's line there? That kind of yeah, I'd I had heard about it, and I had heard that that was the main reason. That sort of caused uh, caused a, a split in the Republican Party and allowed for Bill Clinton to become president, right? Yeah, um, I guess uh, I guess so. I mean, 
there was there actually was someone who has who is often considered a paleoconservative, Pat Buchanan, who actually tried to primary challenge Bush. Uh, and yeah, Pat Buchanan is also behind the bastards on him, uh, which is good. Uh, so yeah, um, and yeah, keep in mind, keep like coming, keep like saying what's on your mind, like we're supposed to have banter here. Uh, so, so uh, the horror of the fact that there actually were new taxes, like because that's normal. Um, Howard Phillips decided that he was done with the Republican Party and also the Democratic Party, but I really think him joining the Democratic Party was just an excuse for him to run in the pri- in, in the Democratic primary for that Senate seat in Massachusetts. Um, so yeah, he, he established a new political party, which was called the U.S. Taxpayers Party. Uh, one of the earliest reports of this new party was in the Atlanta Constitution, where right under the article about this new party, there was a newspaper advertisement for pills that magically make you lose weight. Uh, so really nice. Very ethical. What? what? So this is very ethical. Uh... This was after he was Democrat, yeah? So like he, he switched political parties. Yeah, he switched and then Yeah. And then created a party called the Taxpayer What? The U.S. Taxpayers Party. The U.S. Taxpayers Party. So, so he started out as a Republican, which has kind of fundamental values of low taxes and not wanting to pay taxes and little government. And then all of a sudden, they, they, say, they say that's what their values are. They say that. Doesn't mean they actually are. Right. But I'm go saying, on, like, what, what, what is this guy aligning himself with? Um, well, he thinks that he, he's aligned with other people who think the Republican Party at that time was too liberal. Uh, Interesting. And he then he became a liberal, didn't he? No, well, he didn't. I think he just became a Democrat to run against the Republican senator in Massachusetts. Yeah. Who, who, just uh, to be on the opposite side of the of him. Yeah. Who, so he's he's slimy, is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, okay. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there, there were these things for pills. There's these ads for pills in this newspaper about making you lose weight. So really, 1990 and 2023 aren't too different, but that's mostly off topic. Phillips founded this party through a similarly named organization called the U.S. Taxpayers Alliance, which had 25 statewide affiliates, and he sent a message to pretty much everyone on his mailing list to tell them about his new party. Um, and the Tampa Bay Times put out an article in July of 1991 about the new party in the Christian Nationalist Agenda. So, so, so yeah, um, you know, when you found a party called the uh, U.S. Taxpayers Party, you know what really needs to be in there is Christian nationalism. Logically, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, that has nothing to do with... Uh, with um, it has nothing to do with whether or not George Bush Sr. instituted new taxes or not, and everything with the fact that it, it was religious supremacy. They were religious supremacists. Yeah, it, seems, it seems like he was just trying to monopolize on that anger that was there against George W. Bush to push an even more conservative, George H. W. Bush to push an even more conservative uh, agenda. Yeah. So Phillips said the goal of this new party was to make American politics drift away from what he called humanistic socialist materialism and back to, in the direction of biblical constitutional liberty. Now, the Constitution can contain separation of church and state clause, 
So it is basically impossible for biblical constitutional liberty to actually exist, especially concerning biblical liberty at all, is itself pretty much oxymoronic. Uh, yeah. Uh, but Christian nationalists like to ignore that. Yeah, it's definitely they definitely just inflate or, or, or put together two ideas that don't don't fit into that puzzle. Uh, puzzle. Yeah. I mean, there is a sort of. Um, enlightenment type thinking when you look at like the people who wrote the constitution and that you can trace that kind of back to like anglicanism and like that sort of sense but it's definitely it's explicitly stated in the constitution that religion shouldn't interfere with the government so yeah there's i mean there's there's a little like a like a tiny tiny bit of of logic that allows people to think that way but it, when you really look at it uh the constitution and the bible are two very separate uh, things. Yeah. Um, so Christian nationalism, yeah, yeah, they, they, they ignore that. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, so, 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 yeah, the party's agenda, which is outlined by the Tampa Bay Times, um, it included outlawing all abortion nationwide. I assume that implies that no, that that includes a full, full ban on abortion in cases of rape, incest, or the life of the mother. Uh, with withdrawing funding from the Department of Education and the National Endowment for the Arts, because, oh, the horror, education and arts. Getting rid of all welfare entirely and replacing it with private charity that rich people can easily choose not to engage in. Um, How would that even, I mean, all welfare, would that, like, if you governed, like, that would, seems like it would have, like, all of it, seems like it would have a lot of crazy effects on the economy just to yeah um i, I mean that's, that's the thing with like a lot of like right-wing libertarians they believe that there should be no like programs that help the poor and that the poor should be helped by rich people donating to charity but if you don't if, if, if you allow rich people who just are choose to donate to charity to be the only thing that can help poor people like exist more easily, uh, if, if, if that's the only way it can be done, then those rich people are just going to choose not to give a charity. Not to, yeah, exactly. And it's so ridiculous that people, I mean, people like charity is obviously great, but it's so ridiculous that people, like, even today will believe that just like charity can just solve the issues. Like, if charity could have solved like issues like on poverty, it would have. Like, yeah. there's like, like all the, all it's like, oh, it's like, there's all the charities for poverty in Africa and stuff. And like, that's great, but it's like, there needs to be a systemic kind of, address uh like a addressment of addressing of those kind of issues because it's like so many people will donate and donate and donate and it will help a little bit but it can never solve the problem because if it could have it would have because charity's been around forever and it's been helping people forever but it never solves the issue of poverty yeah yeah i have a question was this guy rich um i, I probably i didn't really that, that that wasn't really something that came up in my research but I mean, it seemed like he was prominent enough. I mean, he, he was in the presidential administration. Yeah, it makes sense, right? Yeah, it does. Where, yeah. where did he go to? Did he go to? Did he go to Harvard or? Yeah, he went to Harvard. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that tells you everything you need to know, right there. Yeah. Um. So, he he. So Phillips also opposed, or the party itself opposed what they called President Bush's New World Order. Uh, ah. Yeah. Um. And yeah, President Bush Sr., uh, but yeah, so Phillips, um, 
Phillips uh, tried to explain his supposed simultaneous devotion to Christian nationalism and the Constitution by saying, and I, I shit you not, this is what he actually says, quote, all ideas are inherently religious. Confidence in the state uh, as the ultimate form of justice is a form of religion. And he somehow used this insane logic to back up his support for defunding the National Endowment for the Arts, because according to Phillips, quote, the endowment, or the endowment uh, quote, gives government support to religious-based ideas. So, which is ridiculous because he's the Christian nationalist, right? Yeah, 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 he's saying all ideas are inherently religious. And therefore so, no funding can go anywhere because it's funding religion. Yeah, oh my god. Um, I wonder if like like uh like the highway signs or whatever like are promoting religion or some shit. Yeah. A little hypocritical when you think about it. Yeah, it's possible he might be like doing this to kind of try and like just kind of like like mess with the interviewers kind of, but uh, I don't know. Um. So, so yeah, I I can't my brain can't comprehend statements that stupid. Uh. So as well, I won't. I won't lie to you. That does kind of make sense. I mean, if you think about it, from you know, have you ever read *Sapiens* by Yuval Noah Harari? No. So he basically says in the book that if you think about it, everything is sort of a religion. I mean, the United States Constitution is kind of like the Bible, and everybody who lives in America sort of follows those rules and agrees to some degree that you know that those rules make sense and that's why society works. I mean, money, like what is money? Money is just paper, but it works because we all believe in it and therefore money is a type of religion. Yeah. So I will it's, it's definitely there are ideas that are similar to religion, right? Like because religion gives a, a sort of way of that way of you should act and practices you should follow and a constitution gives the government ways it should engage within itself. But right. I think those it's important that like with those ideas, they aren't followed as strictly as a religion is, right? Um, or maybe with, with the exception of the government following its own constitution, but then to look for moral, um, to get your morals from the constitution rather than to have your constitution follow your morals. Does that make sense? Yeah, I yes, see the difference. But, but what Howard Phillips is saying absolutely doesn't make sense, and we don't need to try and make it make sense because it doesn't no. make sense. No. Well, when he says, though, the state being the ultimate form of justice. So he is basically accusing, I guess, pro people who like the government or like the idea of having a government. Yeah, it, it of like make, saying it doesn't make sense. Yeah, but saying that they can't enforce laws because they're not the ultimate form of justice. I guess, but yeah, so which is I, weird, but because the government is meant to be the arm of the people, yeah. and right, people should have the power to enforce justice within their own nation. Yeah, I guess, but I mean, that, that hasn't really held up well. So, as this party was growing, it started to attract prominent figure, figures of the early religious right, which was, which Phillips was a, it helped, Phillips actually did help create the religious right. Another callback to Behind the Bastards, on their three-parter on Jerry Falwell is a good listen. The kind of details how the religious right started through this organization like called the Moral Majority, which kind of helped turned evangelical Christians who had like largely supported Jimmy Carter in 1976 and kind of got them to start supporting Reagan instead when Jimmy Carter ran for re-election uh, and lost to Reagan. Um, yeah. So, yeah, um, Ed McAteer, who's another founding father of the religious right, served as the party's statewide organizer in Tennessee. 
Um, he said he was pro-religious freedom and did not want to Christianize the U.S. government. That's total bullshit. The first foray of the U.S. Taxpayers Party into electoral politics was during a special election for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania in 1991 when one of their candidates attempted to run as a write-in candidate and the basically non-existent campaign went nowhere. I'm going to guess like maybe like 91 people might have wrote in this. I don't know. Um, they first fielded a presidential candidate, however, a year later in 1992. And they actually did try to get Ross Perot, the businessman who ran as a centrist independent that year and received over 15% of the popular vote. But Perot not being as far right as the party and being too rich and powerful for it, uh, they didn't didn't accept it. And I, I mentioned before Pat Buchanan, the former White House communications director, who was like a paleoconservative and basically a fascist. Um, he was also the, the the taxpayers party tried to get him too, but he instead ran as a Republican in a primary challenge to the incumbent President Bush. Um, so in the end, Phillips himself was the nominee for president because they couldn't find anyone else. His running mate was Albion W. Knight Jr. Yes, that's a real name. Uh, Albion W. Knight Jr., who seems kind of fitting because he's also uh, the Archbishop of the United Episcopal Church of North America. Now, Episcopal Episcopalianism is Anglicanism. It's, it's what we call the Anglican Church now. Church of England is Episcopalian. But this church that Albion W. Knight Jr. is the Archbishop of is not affiliated with the Church of England. It is rather guess they, they didn't win. Well, yeah, obviously he didn't win. Um, Bill Clinton won. But, but okay. this was actually a part of a fringe movement called Church of England, parentheses, continuing. That's like its actual official name is Church of England, and in a parentheses, the word continuing. And it was a backlash to the regular Episcopalians, like basically not being like super hard right fundamentalists in the way they wanted them to be. Yeah. No, that's definitely because, well, I, I would definitely, I would, because I would call myself an Episcopalian, and like when I like, 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 it's like, especially like, oh, there's a lot of churches, like Episcopalian churches, that are like crazy liberal, and they'll have like pride flags and stuff. So it's, it's definitely interesting to know that there was a, a far right movement within that church. Yeah. Um. So in 1990, so, 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 so yeah, as, as you know, it's pretty obvious Howard Phillips did not win because if he did, you, I mean, we, I mean, students are kind of educated on the all the presidents throughout history, and I mean. Even if you know nothing about someone like Franklin Pierce, you at least know that there was a guy named Franklin Pierce who was president. You never hear about right. Howard Phillips as president, probably because no. he didn't win. He didn't even get close to winning. I mean, it was a three-way race between like uh, George Bush and Bill Clinton and Ross Perot. Um, Ross Perot didn't gain any electoral votes, but he did gain a large amount of the popular vote. Um, the Constitution Party, your Howard Phillips, gained like I don't know, like zero point zero nine percent of the popular vote and also zero electoral votes. Uh, but, yeah, so in 1996, uh, Phillips was kind of desperate and once again attempted to get Pat Buchanan to run on, on their party's ticket. But yet again, Buchanan uh, ran for the Republican nomination instead. And this is kind of disturbing. He actually did well in the primary. He won the New Hampshire primary over the eventual nominee, Bob Dole. Uh, but, yeah, Buchanan's campaign manager said that he would actually be interested, it was his, uh, became his campaign manager who actually told the party that he would be interested in running on the U.S. taxpayers line, but only if the party could get ballot access in all 50 states. Um, now, I, I, I do feel that if they did get ballot access in all 50 states, Pat Buchanan still probably wouldn't run on their line, but 
Also, they didn't get ballot access in all 50 states, so we have no idea. Um, once again, the party found the party's founder, Howard Phillips, was nominated, and uh, Herbert Titus, a lawyer and law professor, was his running mate. No longer Albion W. Knight Jr. Um, and yeah, both of these presidential runs were very unsuccessful, obviously, but the party did have some kind of luck in other fields because the 1998 U.S. taxpayers nominee for Minnesota State Auditor got 5% of the vote, which elevated the U.S. taxpayers party to major party status in Minnesota. But I mean, like, once they have another statewide election and the party doesn't get that much for amount of the vote, they're no longer a major party in Minnesota. Uh, now, in 1997, members of the party convened for their first national committee meeting. At this meeting, it was proposed that they change their name either to the Constitutional Party or the Independent American Party. I like the Constitutional one better. Yeah, definitely. That's actually a really good. I didn't think about that, but the Constitution Party isn't right. It should be constitutional. In, well, the Independent American Party is probably a bad look because that's very similar to the American Independent Party, which is now still exists and is actually kind of like it's actually basically an affiliate of the Constitution Party. But it was first founded like way earlier than the U.S. Taxpayers Party was because it was the party that George Wallace ran uh, ran on in 1968. Oh, wow. On a pro-segregation platform. Uh now, the motion to rename resulted in a tie of 27 yes to 27 no, um, and thus the name of the party remained the U.S. Taxpayers Party because they couldn't get a, they couldn't get more than a tie. Um, another name change was proposed in March 1999, um, with with potential new names being American Independent, and I mean at least Amer Independent American is different than the American Independent Party that already exists, but. In 1999, they did propose just naming it the American Independent Party, like the one that already exists. But in addition to that, there was also Amer the American Heritage Party, the Constitutional Party again, the Independent American Party again, and the American Constitution Party, which is actually now like an alternate name. Uh, but yeah, these attempts failed. But later in 1999, in September of that year, they had another national convention, and they officially changed their name from the U.S. Taxpayers Party to the Constitution Party. Uh, an attendee of that convention of the now Constitution Party was Rick Jor, was a uh, Rick Jor, I think that's how you say it, a Republican Montana state representative who would eventually switch to the Constitution Party a year later, and after switching parties because he wasn't running as one of the major parties. Rick George lost re-election to the Montana House of Representatives, but he did try and gain his seat back in 2002 and 2004, and it was finally successful in 2006. He served two more years, or one more two-year term, before he was term-limited. And uh, in 2000, uh, the Constitution Party dealt with a bit of infighting, because, of course, I think uh, infighting there was kind of inevitable. Uh, Welcome to politics. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was sparked by members more devoted to Christianity uh, than others who were more devoted to, like, taxes and stuff like that. Uh, and th this resulted in the, the more just, like, insane, like, Christian fanatic members breaking off into something called the Christian Liberty Party. And in 2006, there was another schism when the Oregon affiliate of the Constitution Party ended its affiliation with the nationwide party, uh, specifically because... Uh, 
despite the fact that the Oregon affiliate of the Constitution Party was staunchly anti-abortion, just like the rest of the party, it did support necessary abortion measures in case of rape, incest, or the life of the mother. But the nationwide party did not. It was full on. You have to carry to term. Um, the Oregon Constitution Party would uh, establish a new nationwide affiliation with the Independent American Party, which is another uh, far-right far paleoconservative party, because the Oregon affiliate sucks too. However, I do want to say that the Oregon affiliate of the Constitution Party, while it does suck, it also did something really good. Uh, and that was that uh, in 2008, um, there was a Republican uh, senator from Oregon who was running for re-election. Uh, and he was being challenged by a Democrat, Jeff Merkley, who is now still in the, who is now in the Senate. He's one of he's, he's Oregon's junior senator. Uh, and um, there was a Constitution Party candidate running that election. Uh, and if you add up the Republican votes and the Constitution Party votes, it's more than the amount the Democrat got. So he oh, wow. spoiled it. And but because of that, had this guy had there not been a Constitution Party candidate and the incumbent Republican won, there wouldn't have been the necessary votes needed to pass Obamacare. So wow. if it weren't for the Oregon affiliate of the Constitution Party, we would not have Obamacare. Uh, so thanks, Oregon affiliate of the Constitution Party, for that. So now, in the 2000 presidential election, the Constitution Party looked like it might actually have a notable nominee who's not named Howard Phillips, because a U.S. senator, uh, Senator Bob Smith of New Hampshire, who was actually uh, an employer of my father, my father once worked for Senator Bob Smith, uh, yeah, he, uh, he was like, he actually... Uh, left the Republican Party, and he looked to seek the nomination of the Constitution Party. But it was short-lived, and uh, within months, like, just of the nomination process starting, Bob Smith dropped out. Uh, like, he, he was, like, he, he was actually remained in the Senate, and he was an independent who was caucusing with the Republicans and eventually switched back. But in 2003, he would lose, he would, like, get, he would lose a primary to a more moderate candidate, uh, because New Hampshire is in New England, uh, so someone as conservative as him was kind of out of place. Wait, so what's with this Constitutional Party today? I mean, are they still around and active? They are still around, but they've gotten less notable. And they weren't really that notable in the first place, but they've basically become nothings. I mean, usually now, when whenever there's a right-wing party that kind of like spoils elections for, can for Republican candidates, usually it's just libertarians now. Uh, mm. Yeah, this Bob Smith guy is a strange fellow. He actually attempted, uh, he actually later moved to Florida and tried to run for Senate there in 2010 and also 2004, but I think the polling sh showed him like with less than 1% of support in the polls. So he dropped out. And then he later moved back to New Hampshire to run for his old seat, but lost the primary, or he actually came in third in the primary. Uh, so, so definitely a guy with a tumultuous career. Uh, kind of bad person because he wanted to see his party nomination, but yeah. So after Bob Smith dropped out within months of the primary starting, uh, Howard Phillips was yet again nominated uh, as the party's nominee. And like the first two times, uh, it's a different running mate each time. This time, paleoconservative columnist Joseph Sabran was initially Phillips' running mate, but he withdrew from the ticket before the election because he wanted to focus on his work as a columnist. So Curtis Frazier, who was just some physician, was chosen as his replacement. And the ticket finished sixth in the presidential election. So, yeah, good on you guys. You finished sixth. 
I mean, you lost. Uh, I mean, the, the, the guy who won didn't even really win, and you didn't even get close. Uh, so in 2004, something changed uh, for the better, I guess, but not really because none of this is, like, actually good. Because in 2004, the nominee for the Constitution Party was not Howard Phillips. Uh, it was uh, instead um, a Maryland-based attorney named Michael Perutka. Let's and go, his, Maryland. Yeah. And his running mate was Florida-based pastor Chuck Baldwin. Now, <laughs> this is going to get it. This has a lot of explaining, but we're coming to the end of this half-hour segment. I'm going to start a new one after this. There might be ads. I might. I have to choose whether I put them in, but at, we'll we'll be right back after this break. Okay, we're back. Uh, now, okay, so yeah, Michael Perutka and Chuck Baldwin. Um, so spoiler alert: Baldwin uh, was actually the party's nominee for president in 2008, but we'll get to him later because we're talking about 2004. So Michael Perutka was like a total nobody at the time. Like Howard Phillips would have been no- more notable. Um, but uh, he was the nominee. Uh, his career prior to running for president is practically unknown. I tried to look for stuff, but it, it, it's like everything about his career is just always written in like the, the present tense. Like as if like, or I guess like some of it is in the past tense, but like it, it's, it's confusing as to what he was doing before he ran for president other than just like being a lawyer. Um, but what we do know is that he is a former member of the League of the South. You, and, and this organization endorsed his campaign for president. Do you know? Do you guys know what the League of the South? Is? I feel like I can take like a wild, a wild guess. Yeah, I've never heard of it, but I'll take a gander. What do you think? I, probably I some, uh, some, uh, probably like very progressive uh, <laughs> trans rights <laughs> activists. <laughs> oh, right, hundred. Yeah, yeah, right on the money there. It's a. Uh, it's uh it's also known as the League for short, and it's labeled a hate group by the SP, uh, by the Southern Poverty Law Center because it's a neo-Confederate organization, which also is affiliated with some neo-Nazi organizations. So basically, the message to take from this is that these people really like losers. Their favorite thing is the loser. <laughs> Although one loser, they, I mean, I'm, I'm sure some of them like Donald Trump, who's also a loser. But a lot of like, there are a lot of paleoconservative types who also like don't like Donald Trump because they think he's not conservative enough. Um, especially a lot of them, um, they're, they're some of like the most right-wing, like, like e- even though most right-wingers are pro-Israel, a lot of, uh, a lot of um, paleo-conservatives are actually very staunchly anti-Israel. A lot of it... Are there any because, parallels? What? Are there parallels between this group and like the KKK? Um, they're pretty similar. They both kind of have similar origins of kind of like Confederate nostalgia. But yeah, a lot of paleoconservatives are anti. It is because uh, it, it is interesting. Sorry, wait. You actually even yeah, yeah. They basically they, they do say like, oh, I'm just against us like aiding other countries. But also, it's just it's pretty obvious that they don't like Israel, regardless, because there are definitely criticisms that can be made of it. And I mean, I we shouldn't fault anybody for making those criticisms, but they are against it because it's a Jewish state um so yeah uh they um are yeah uh they uh that feels anti-semitic what that feels anti-semitic yeah yeah it, it is anti-semitic um okay all right and it's interesting yeah. you can tell which uh the, the the split in between these right-wing groups which ones are more anti-semitic and which ones are more anti-arab yeah and that's that that's a big split there there are 
definitely a lot of right wingers who, you know, say they're on the side of Israel, but they, they really don't give a shit. They're really anti-Semitic, but they just hate Arabs. And that's why they support Israel. And then there are right wing groups who say that they uh, support Palestine and support that liberation. They don't. Well, they, they don't really. They don't care about it. They just hate Jews. Yeah. And so it's funny because that the split isn't over. Uh, it's, it's just over which group you're more racist to. Yeah. A lot of people like this do, some of them like Trump just because he's kind of like the, the, the furthest right person who they think could actually be a viable presidential candidate considering the fact that he actually did win a term. But a lot of them also just like are openly saying, oh, Trump is too pro-vaccine, he's too pro-Israel, and he, he doesn't, he's not like as racist as we want him to be. So some of them don't like him, but yeah. Um, so the League of the South, back to them. <laughs> They support uh, another secession of the former states of the Confederacy. Um, and in 2015, they actually held an event celebrating the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And their official Facebook page in an advertisement for it said, Join us in April to celebrate the great accomplishment of John Wilkes Booth. He knew a man who needed killing when he saw him. Dang. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's awesome, man. Uh, so back to Michael Peruka, his campaign <laughs> had some notable supporters, uh, or had some notable endorsements. Uh, so there's Alex Jones. Alex Jones uh, endorsed Michael Peruka's presidential campaign. Of course. As did another political party, the Alaskan Independence Party, which isn't necessarily far right. Like in like, like it's not like inherently, but it did endorse this campaign. Uh, it's a third party in Alaska. It's like basically it's all about supporting Alaskan secession. And some of their candidates have, like, reached above 5% of the vote in some gubernatorial elections in Alaska. So, yeah. What, what possible benefit could there be for Alaskan independence? Yeah, at the very least, go back to Canada, you know? Yeah. Well, it was never part of Canada. It was part of Russia, right? Yeah. Right, right. I'm saying, like, just go to Canada. Yeah, it's right there. American. Yeah, like, it's so much closer to you guys. Or, 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 I mean, I mean, since a lot of them are very right-wing and would endorse a candidate like Michael Perutka, it doesn't seem like they'd want to be in Canada. No, it doesn't. Yeah, because, I mean, like, the thing is, like, like basically, uh, the, the, like, I mean, the Conservative Party of Canada is actually, a lot of their positions are more aligned with the U.S. Democratic Party. Like, they're not, like, they, they like, support abortion rights and stuff like that. They're just kind of, like, fiscally conservative. But, uh, so, 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 yeah, they, they probably prefer to live in the U.S., where... I mean, things are just so much further to the right. Yeah, I'm just thinking like, like who is in Alaska and like thinking like, I like this society is not like, Alaska would be so much better off. Like, what problems is the you like U.S. government causing that like Alaska or sorry, I have to stop wearing this bad. Like how like Alaska? How could Alaska like be sustainable on its own? The thing is, like, like they just don't want to pay taxes like to yeah. us. Like, exactly, but it's wanna... like. This, Alaska even have like the like agriculture or whatever to like sustain itself. No, I mean it's mostly like fish. Yeah. Yeah. I mean they have a McDonald's there, right? Like exactly. Yeah, but, like I think but, probably in the cities because there are cities there. Yeah, but but like it's like that's because like all the trade and stuff like because there's like trade within the states like you can just like ship the potatoes and beef like to the McDonald's in Alaska. But if Alaska was its own nation, that would there'd be a tax on that trade. Yeah. 
but yeah, getting back to the endorsements, in addition to the Alaskan Independence Party and Alex Jones, they were also endorsed, or well, not endorsed, but in an appearance on MSNBC's show Hardball with Chris Matthews, Pat Buchanan was on there and said he was considering voting for Perutka um, during his appearance there. Uh, of course, despite these like very high-level endorsements from very prominent pe- figures like Alex Jones and the Alaskan Independence Party, Surprisingly enough, Michael Perutka did not win. He received 0.01% of the popular vote and placed fifth nationwide. And that made the Constitution Party the only third party to increase their vote share from 2000 to two, in 2004. But Really? Yeah. Not even the, not even like the uh, Republican Party increased their... No, I, I said the only third party. Oh, the only third I was about to say, I was like, there's no way. Well, well yeah, yeah, but... uh. Another notable endorsement of Perutko was a businessman named Matt Bevin. Uh, he ran as a Republican primary challenger to Kentucky Senator and evil m- turtle Mitch McConnell in 2014. And it was one of the many notable primary challenges against like more establishment Republicans by supporters of the Tea Party movement, which is big at that time, kind of like the oh, yeah. precursor of Trumpism. Um, McConnell, when he was running against Bevin, uh, in the primary, actually released an attack ad, which made note of, uh, which made note of uh, Bevin's support for Michael Perutka for president. Now, this is this, I, I, this is something that the state of Kentucky needs to be ashamed of, because a year later, after his unsuccessful primary challenge against Mitch, Mitch McConnell, Matt Bevin would be elected governor of Kentucky. He won a crowded Republican primary against a guy who's now a congressman, who's actually now the chair of the House Oversight Committee, but was then the state commissioner of agriculture, who beat the primary by like 83 votes. Extremely close. Um, And despite the fact that Kentucky is a very red state, Matt Matt Bevin was such a bad governor that he actually lost re-election in 2019 to the state's Democratic Attorney General, who's now the current governor, Andy Beshear. Um, and he's, he's still in the office right now. He's not necessarily the most conservative Democrat either. So, yeah, Matt Bevin sucks. Wow. So, yeah, in addition to being a, a like a neo-Confederate, Michael Peruka is also a young Earth creationist, has referred to the separation of church and state as, quote, a great lie, views public schools as a communist plot, and referred to public education as, quote, the tenth plank in the Communist Manifesto. He also voted in favor of disaffiliating the Constitution Party's Nevada affiliate for its support of abortion in cases of rape, incest, or life of the mother. It, 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 that, that's always such a major problem that these people have with some of their statewide affiliates. Um, it's that, like, oh, they don't have compassion, but, like, they should have less compassion. Is this the reason we started off the pod talking about like fascism? Was it Basically, because of yeah. this guy? Okay. <laughs> it's it's I think, you know, technically on the public education being a part of communism, yeah. it is a big part. Well okay. It is a big part is to increase literacy. Right, so, but it's not a bad thing. Yeah, it's, not a bad it's not pulling out of nowhere. Yeah, but also it kinda of depends on which kind of communism. Like for example, like anarcho communists don't some of them want to abolish like all education or want like new kind of programs for that kind of stuff. So they don't yeah. really support like private or public school. No, I know what you mean, but it's all—it's also like what you're saying is like ridiculous. Obviously, just yeah. just because education is part of communism, like education is part of every society. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, I think he, he does want private education at least, but yeah. still, that's not really necessarily a good thing. 
it should exactly. also be noted and that public education yeah. has in the United States has been around like probably actually I'm not sure if this is true, but basically before communism, right? I'd assume so, but yeah, or, but yeah. or around the same time, right? It's like around Civil War times. Probably. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, another notable thing about Michael Brutka is that when a guy named Roy Moore ran to be uh, ran for the Alabama Supreme Court. His biggest donor was Michael Perutka. And does the name Roy Moore sound familiar to you, too? I feel like I've heard it for sure, yeah. Well, yeah. He eventually would become the chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court and would eventually be the nominee for uh, U.S. Senate in Alabama in 2017 after the incumbent Senator Jeff Sessions became attorney general. Um, and then it was revealed that Roy Moore uh, is, is a pedophile. He, like, did some really bad stuff to children, to underage girls. Uh, and it was such a major scandal that the Democrat in that race actually won in Alabama. Wow. I mean, just tw- in fact, what's funny is that 30 years ago, it was very easy for a Democrat to get elected in Alabama, but it's shifted very hard to the right now. So it was still pretty surprising. Um, and, and, and also he lost reelection when he ran for a full term in 2020 to a football coach named Tommy Tuberville is now one of their current senators. He has no political experience. Uh, he has claimed that his grandfather fought the socialists during World War II, which Jesus. Yeah, and he also, <laughs> and he also, despite being being a member of the U.S. Senate, claimed that the three branches of government were uh, they were the executive branch, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. That that's what he thinks that the. <laughs> okay, he's he's not totally off. Like he he's he's missing a couple, but it's like well, no, it's the. Executive, judicial, and legislative. Right, right, but the House and the Senate are the... They're parts of the government. He, yeah. He, he kind of gets the idea. <laughs> I'd rather have a point. Yeah, also, even though he did manage to beat the guy who Roy Moore lost to, he was also a college football coach. And while he's a respected college football coach, you definitely, if, if you hear the term college football coach in Alabama, and not just Alabama, he also taught, I think, at the University of Mississippi, so college football coach who worked in Alabama and Mississippi doesn't sound like someone who has nothing related to bad stuff done to underage people on his record. I'm sure he's probably tough right. some bad stuff to, just like Roy Moore in that regard. But yeah, it, it was, uh, he probably wouldn't have been running for Senate at all if it worked for Michael Peruka being a major supporter of his campaign for state Supreme Court. So, yeah, there's also uh, a video of Michael Peruka speaking to a group of people and asking, um, and uh, asking the people to stand for the for the national anthem. Just saying, please stand for the national anthem. Uh, and then they played the minstrel, the minstrel tune Dixie, which is seen as the de facto anthem of the Confederacy. Uh, that's interesting because that that's that sort of would be seen as like disrespecting the national anthem. Well, yes, which is it, like. America Usually something support the Confederacy you know, disrespecting America. Yeah. Um, now, due to the controversy regarding the Nevada affiliate and also the Oregon affiliate, 2006, the Maryland affiliate, located in the home state of Michael Perkins, would itself disaffiliate from the nationwide party. And... Uh, in 2006, which was two years after Peruka ran for president, and he would switch to the Republican Party in 2014. So after becoming a Republican, Peruka would re-enter politics, and this time on a local level. In 2014, in his home state of Maryland, he was elected to the Anne Arundel County Council. Uh, and from December 2017 to December 2018, he was actually the chairman 
of the Anne Arundel County Council, but he left uh, office because he lost his primary to a less insane person. Um, and uh, But that wasn't the end of his political career. Um, and I, I should note to listeners that all of us are, I believe all of us are based in Maryland. So, yeah. Um, but in 2022, he ran to be the state's attorney general. Um, of course, if it's Maryland, no matter who won the primary, be it a neo-Confederate or some generic Republican endorsed by Larry Hogan, the governor, because there was a candidate in that primary who was endorsed by Larry Hogan. It's not Michael Furtka, but that candidate lost to Michael Furtka. Um, and uh, yeah, he was Furtka was the nominee, uh, and he he had resigned from the League of the South years earlier after he actually tried to like start a real political career, but. Uh, he still, uh, and, and he referred to the beliefs of the League of the South as contrary to his beliefs, but he also refused to openly disavow during his campaign for state attorney general, uh, which is not hard to do. He didn't, he didn't win, right? Well, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah, because there's no way, like, yeah, he lost uh, by a Confederate two- win in Maryland, there's no way. He lost yeah. by a two-to-one margin. Yeah. Yeah. A similar thing happened in the primary for governor because Larry Hogan's endorsed candidate also lost that to like a far right Trump endorsed candidate who lost the general election two to one. Uh, now, uh, during his campaign for state attorney general, uh, he ran on uh, some generic conservative stuff like being uh, tough on crime and tough on immigration, op- opposition to abortion, which is great way to get elected in Maryland, a very anti-abortion state. Uh, election integrity, which is related to stop the steal stuff most of the time, and opposition yeah. to COVID restrictions. And his campaign slogan was Liberty Forever, Mandates Never. He pledged to take legal action. Kind of slaps. What? Yeah, that's catchy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he actually pledged to take legal action against the outgoing governor, Larry Hogan, who is also a Republican, uh, for Hogan's institution of COVID restrictions. Uh, and in the, during the Republican primary, he defeated Jim Shalek, a prosecutor who Hogan endorsed, but lost the general election in a massive landslide to Democratic Congressman and former Lieutenant Governor Anthony Brown. And Anthony Brown was actually the guy who lost to Larry Hogan when he ran for governor in 2014. And that was seen as a major upset. Uh, but yeah, so that, that we, we, we've gone through our description of Michael Peruka, so let's move on to the 2008 election. Um, now, in that, it was Chuck Baldwin, the Florida-based uh, pastor, uh, who was the nominee for vice president four years earlier, and he was the nominee this time. And I'll tell you this, as awful as I describe Michael Peruka as being, Chuck Baldwin is probably worse. Um, but, yeah, but yeah, in, in many of the other primaries for this party, nobody of note ran, and the party just had to get the founder to run, obviously, but this time... Not only was Howard Phillips not a candidate because they actually had another person, Chuck Baldwin, but Chuck Baldwin actually had a primary opponent. There was another guy, um, and, and this guy is basically a legend. He's another Marylander. Um, his name is Alan Keyes, um, probably one of the greatest perennial candidates in history. Uh, he's ran for elected office multiple times, uh, and uh, but his, he did have a little bit of uh, experience in uh, the in Reagan State Department, serving in the position of Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs from 1985 to 1987. Uh, he ran uh, for president in 1996, 2000, and 2008, which is, and we're about to get into. He dropped out of the 2008 Republican primary to run for the Constitution Party nomination. I, I should also note that uh, when he ran for president in 2000, um, there was like a like Michael Moore. Uh, you, you guys know who that is. 
I've heard the name. Yeah, he's like a, do- a documentary, a liberal documentary guy. He, he did a like his brief, short-lived like show uh, where he tried to get candidates running for the, the major party nominations from both parties to, to drop into a mosh pit, and pretty much all of them rejected, except for Alan Keyes, and they filmed it. You, you, can, you can find it. I, I think you can find video online of Alan Keyes going into a mosh pit. It's pretty legendary, uh, but he's a pretty awful guy. Um, I, I, I like he's he's like very homophobic, and uh, his daughter is like a lesbian anarchist. And when he found out about that, he basically said like, "Get the hell out of my house." He's one of those people. Uh, yeah. So, so he ran for the Republican nomination in 2008, but he dropped out for the Constitution Party. And and also, I should note that he was also, since I mentioned he was a Marylander, he was the nominee for Senate for U.S. Senate in Maryland in 1988 and 1992. And when he ran in 1998, Reagan actually endorsed him. My dad actually showed me a video of like Reagan giving a speech endorsing him, because uh, <laughs> I mean he was a former employee of Reagan's. But yeah, wow. but in addition to being the Republican nominee for two uh, Senate elections in Maryland, that wasn't even the only state he ran in, uh, because because uh, in 2004 they had not the in Illinois there was a Senate election for an open Republican held seat for. For a guy, for a one-term senator who wasn't seeking re-election, uh, and the Republican nominee ended up dropping out, so Alan Keyes carpetbagged over to Illinois so they could make him the nominee. Um, now, he lost in a massive landslide to the Democratic candidate, who won almost every county, including the very Republican, like like counties in like the Southern Illinois area. He couldn't even get those. Um, yeah, the Democratic, he lost to the Democratic candidate who was, uh, who was at that point, uh, a little-known state senator by the name of Barack Obama. I've heard of him. I've heard of him. Yeah. Um, he's a guy who I can make a whole episode about. Like, I, I probably should. Um, yeah, so, he actually... He's he, fairly he, underground, though. He's, he's, I think he's a little too niche. Uh, you'll probably say the same thing about the Constitution Party, but yeah. When he was first running for the Republican nomination in 2008, he actually did participate in one of the debates in December 2007 before he switched parties to the Constitution Party. But eventually, even though he appeared during a debate, he was not listed as a candidate choice during the Iowa caucuses. And that's kind of a shift because I think it was either in 2000 or in 2000 or in maybe 2004, but I think 2000, uh, he basically became notable because after most of like the other also ran candidates dropped out, even though they get, did a little better than him, he like did not. He like stayed until the convention, even though he knew there was no chance. He just never dropped out. Uh, so yeah, he, he was not listed as a choice of candidate during the Iowa caucuses. He's a wackadoo. Um, he supports a constitutional amendment to same to ban same sex marriage, even though his daughter and of course his daughter is lesbian. Um, and he also says he wouldn't have gone to war with Iraq were he president during the aftermath of 9-11, but that the war that did happen was justified. He's saying that I wouldn't have gone to war, but it was justified that we did it. Uh, like, it's good that other people died for our freedom, basically. Well, I mean, he wouldn't have gone to war in Iraq as in he wouldn't have been a soldier, or as in if he was president. Yeah, if he was president, but he still thinks so he basically, basically, he's just saying if it was justified, he would have just... No, he was saying that what did happen under the Bush administration was justified, but he wouldn't have done that if he were president. But he also thinks it was justified. Yeah, but see, that's sort of saying that then, like, he's just allowing America to be uh, attacked almost. I, I guess... I mean, if it's justified, 
he's basically just saying, oh, I'm, I'm just letting us get attacked. Yeah, um, so, yeah, but also Alan Keyes also kind of gained some notoriety because he uh, filed multiple lawsuits against his former U.S. Senate opponent, Barack Obama, um, as part of the major birther movement. Uh, there were, there were uh, like, lawsuits trying to prove that Obama was born in Kenya. Um, it's pretty ridiculous that Keyes would take part in all of these racist attacks on Obama because... Because unless both of you, like, were both looking up what he looks like as I was talking, you probably wouldn't be aware of this, but Alan Keyes himself is African-American. But he was very open to participate in these racist attacks against Obama. And uh, I actually, uh, he was actually mentioned on the Behind the, on a Behind the Bastards episode that was about uh, this church that is run by a guy who, like, proposes, like, drinking bleach as, like, a solution to ailments. And he was actually involved in promoting. Well, have, well, okay, whoa, whoa. let's not be so quick to judge if you haven't tried it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so after Keyes left the Republican Party and joined the Constitution primary, he actually faced backlash for his support of neoconservative policies because, uh, because while a lot of people usually associate like the left wing with being the people who oppose like all the wars. A lot of like the, the far, like the paleoconservatives, because like I mentioned, they believe that we shouldn't be like focusing on other countries, like because that just delegitimizes. That, that that just like makes. Yeah, definitely. You, you see it a lot with um with the Ukraine stuff today. Yeah, um, there, there was stuff like that. Although the thing is, it was they. It, I, I I actually agree that the that uh, intervening in Iraq was not good. Although I don't feel the same way about Ukraine, uh, because I mean it's and we're not even because. It's an actual war where people are another country is doing terrible things to another country. But yeah, people fighting. Well, people try to put like the. Oh, sorry, you go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say that like with, with Ukraine, it's like we're actually like it's not just we're fighting for Ukraine. We're fighting against Putin and his like whole dictator over Russia thing. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think that's like kind of what the Cold War was all about, right? Yeah. No, definitely. And I, but I think like. Yeah, the Cold War was about fighting communism. And, well, yeah, and what, but, but I mean, it was more about trying to get resources from those countries and to commit genocides in those countries. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, yeah, that also happened. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, Alan Keyes, uh, because he was more supportive of neoconservative pro-war policies, while the party at large was very much not, uh, he, he faced a lot of backlash for this from the party and... Uh, it's primarily for his belief that the Iraq war was justified because he said that and that was not liked by the party. So he lost the primary to Chuck Baldwin. Uh, but he did end up as a general election candidate for the American Independent Party, which I should reiterate was created as a pro-segregation party and that Alan Keyes is a black man. Um, now, we're about to finish another half-hour segment, so we're about to start another, but we'll take another break. Okay, and we're yet again back. Uh, now, okay, so we, we had our discussion about Keys, and I, I do probably intend to make an episode of this podcast about him in the future, but uh, we have to move on to the actual nominee in 2008, who is Chuck Baldwin. Um, as I mentioned before, he was Michael Peruka's running mate in 2004, and uh, his own run and his running mate in 2008 was Daryl Castle, who is a lawyer from Tennessee. Um, Baldwin is a Baptist minister, and he began his career in the burgeoning religious right movement as the leader of the Moral Majority's Florida branch. Like I mentioned, the Moral Majority was the right-wing religious right organization that helped uh, create the modern American religious right and turn evangelicals away from Jimmy Carter and toward Ronald Reagan. Um, he left the Republican Party in 2004 because he saw the GOP as too far left, 
That's what he actually said. The Republican Party, far left. Now, despite running a presidential campaign of his own, Baldwin actually did make an endorsement in the Republican primary, and that was of Texas Congressman Ron Paul, who is like basically Jesus to libertarians, even though he's not necessarily the most libertarian. He, I mean, yeah, I think he likes weed and he opposes war, but like he also has called himself like a major opponent of abortion, which that's not very libertarian. Yeah. I say that. Like, I mean, if you, if you don't support a woman's right to choose, that's like inherently non-libertarian. No, definitely, but it is actually, I think, within the Libertarian Party, it's a, it's like a 50-50 split. Yeah. Because, I mean, so. there are left-wing Libertarians. I consider myself one of them, actually, like a left-wing Libertarian, which is very different. Um, well, definitely, yeah, but within the right-wing Libertarian Party, like, it's interesting because it's all about freedom, yeah. but the abortion debate is still 50-50 yeah. on when, whether the government should intervene there. Yeah. So, yeah, Ron Paul... After receiving the endorsement in the primary from Chuck Baldwin, actually would return the favor, and because he hated John McCain so much, and obviously also hated Obama, he endorsed Chuck Baldwin in the general election, um, and uh, that actually helped elevate his campaign a little bit. And uh, he was, and, and, and he ended up being endorsed by multiple former congressmen, along with the, along with Ron Paul, who at the time was an incumbent congressman. Um, and uh, former Senator Bob Smith, who we mentioned earlier, endorsed Chuck Baldwin. Uh, he also, uh, yeah, um, he, he also endorsed him, I believe. But uh, his far-right ideology, Chuck Baldwin's, came to light when he made opposition to globalism, which is just kind of like a word they use. Uh, he made that a major point of his campaign and spread conspiracy th theories about, like, it's about, like, not, he spread 9-11 truth or garbage. Um, wow. Yeah, his campaign gained even more attention when Alan, when he, Alan Key's former Georgia congressman and libertarian nominee for president, 2008 Bob Barr, and Colorado congressman Tom Tancredo, convened to hold an anti-immigration protest rally outside the Democratic National Convention. Now, I should also note another issue with the uh, with uh, like right-wing libertarians and their hypocrisy is also on immigration. Like they, they also have some pretty non-libertarian views on that. And I assume you two probably both know who the Koch brothers are. Yep. Well, who the Koch brothers, one of them is, and the other was, because one of them is thankfully dead. Um, yeah, I think it sounds stupid, but for a while, I thought that they were like the heir to the Coca-Cola fortune. <laughs> no. <laughs> no but, but yeah, they do like fund a lot of like anti-immigration, uh, pro-war, and anti-abortion like Republican candidates because they really just hate democracy but they also are do consider themselves committed libertarians and they actually do support like they, they do support immigration I believe they support abortion rights they support uh, marijuana legalization and they oppose they've always opposed war so like I mean even some right-wing libertarians including the ones who actually support these like anti-immigration hardliners who aren't real libertarians because of that I mean that they're funded by some people who actually support immigration well, because well, like the Koch brothers, they're like ultra capitalists, right? Yeah. Yeah, and when you look at it in that sense, like unfettered immigration would bring in so much cheap labor. Yeah. That's like that's why there's a lot of like mega like evil mustache twirling capitalists that like support that because they just want to get the more ex easily exploitable population in. Yeah, um, there there was a behind the bastards. I I keep I keep name dropping them. They did do an episode on Charles Koch, which is good, but uh. Yeah, so so at this during uh, Chuck Baldwin's campaign, in addition to this rally, he also 
uh, called both Obama and McCain globalists, um, voices support for abolishing the Federal Reserve, called the United Nations a sinister organization run by Marxists, socialists, and communists, and promised that if elected president, he would release two former Border Patrol agents who were convicted of murdering a drug smuggler and covering up the kill the killing. Um, he, he, he had like promised he would uh, he would release both of them from prison. Um, and of course, he did not become president. He received zero point fifteen percent of the vote. Um, <laughs> Dang, like ten people. <laughs> Which is better than usual for the party, but yeah, still, didn't win. Uh, so since he ran for president, Chuck Baldwin has been an online columnist and radio host. Uh, he wrote a daily editorial column on the website VDARE, which I should note is openly white national. It's like openly white supremacist. It was founded by Peter Brimelow, who also endorsed Chuck Baldwin for president and is like an open white supremacist after Roe v. Wade got overturned. like. Like he, some people found, like him saying something, saying like, "Oh, now do Brown v. Board of Education," uh, like enthusiastically saying that. Um, well, I think that's pretty racist. Like you're entitled to your yeah. own opinion. Yeah. I think it's, that's it's, it's racist. It's absolutely racist. Yeah. Um, so, so, On the same yeah, page. Chuck Baldwin has railed a lot against Zionism, but I mean, I did mention that a lot of these these paleoconservative people are anti-Israel, but that's clearly not what he's not what uh w w when chuck baldwin rails against zionism you know he's not actually talking about the ideology of the people who believe that israel is the homeland for the jews because he describes that as saying it's the main that saying zionism is the main threat to the u.s that they control the media uh the mainstream christian religion and the u.s government and that is responsible for the ills of u.s society and culture so obviously this, there's no way that an ideology about jewish people wanting to Create a, establish a homeland in Israel has anything to do with mainstream Christianity and the U.S. government and the media. He clearly no. means Jews when he says. Yeah, that, and they say that. He means they Jews. say that just so that they can say like we're opposing an ideology when really they're opposing a like an ethnic group. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what he means by that is Jewish people. So yeah, after running for president, he moved from Florida to Montana, which is funny. It, it is funny to think about. Uh, like a right-wing nut job moving from Florida. Yeah, to Montana though. It's not that much, not that much better. Yeah, but it's. it's I mean, I mean, it's just all we hear about now is how like all the right-wing people have moved to Florida. Even, even some people from other countries, like Jair Bolsonaro, who just lost his re-election to be Brazil's president, moved to Florida, or at least he was in Florida and got hospitalized and somehow for some reason didn't die, and that's unfortunate. Um. Yeah, so in Montana, he continues to engage in white nationalist pra praxis, and he worked, and he's actually worked with far right militias like the Oath Keepers, uh, which was in, who, who were involved in January sixth. So we, we were just talking about two thousand eight, and you might think that we're about to move on to twenty twelve, but we're not. We're instead going to move on to twenty ten during the midterm elections, um, because former Republican Colorado Congressman Tom Tancredo, who I mentioned before, was. Uh, involved in the anti-immigration protests outside the Democratic National Convention that uh, Chuck Baldwin was involved in, um, he ran to be the governor of Colorado. Um, and the Republican primary was was primarily between him and Dan Mays, who was like a businessman who nobody knew about. Uh, but uh, but eventually, Ted Credo dropped out of the primary and ran in the general election under the Constitution Party against the popular mayor of Denver, John Hickenlooper, who is now a U.S. senator. You might remember how he like was a presidential candidate in 2020 and his campaign went nowhere, kind of got made fun of a bit. 
Then he dropped out and ran for Senate. Successfully. Uh, so yeah, most of the county, so, so I mean, the thing is this, since the business, this businessman, Dan Mays, who ran as a Republican, was like so unknown, the, the main opposition candidate, the main right-wing opposition candidate was Tom Tancredo, who was running under the Constitution Party. And most of the counties in Colorado that usually vote for the Republican candidates voted for Tancredo. And Mays only won two counties in the southwest corner of the state with a plurality of less than 40% of the vote in those counties. But Tancredo released a, re received 36% of the vote, and that elevated the Constitution Party to the major party status in Colorado. And under Colorado law, any party whose candidate receives more than just 10% of the vote in a statewide general election qualifies as a major party. Um, fun Luckily enough, the Republican nominee, Dan Mays, received about 11% of the vote. So he was, if, if, so if he got around 20% less of the vote, the Republican par Party would lose major party status in Colorado, despite being one of the two major parties nationwide. Um, so although it almost happened, it didn't happen, and the Constitution Party lost its major party status in Colorado when it didn't field a candidate again to run against Hickenlooper in the 2014 gubernatorial election. Uh, because they didn't bother. Cowards. Uh, yeah. So prior to 2012, nobody truly notable ran for the Constitution Party presidential nomination, other than Bob Smith, who dropped out early, uh, and, and Alan Keyes. Alan Keyes was also kind of notable, but he lost the primary. So that would change in the year 2012 when former Virginia Congressman Virgil Goode uh, became the nominee for the Constitution Party for president. Good was actually uh, elected. He was a member of the Virginia legislature before being elected to Congress in 1997 um, after serving since 1973 as a state senator. And despite the fact that he was a nominee for a far-right borderline fascist party, he was actually first elected to Congress as a Democrat, um, but a very conservative Democrat. One of the few, he, was a, he was a Southern Democrat because, I mean, he was from... I, I mean, I, there's a bit of a debate over whether Virginia is actually like Southern. I, I think that Northern Virginia is mid-Atlantic, but most of the rest of the state is Southern. I mean, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I mean, it's Southern. It's Southern. Virginia is Southern. Okay. I Northern mean, like, Virginia, capital of the Confederacy was in Virginia. Yeah, yeah. Robert E. Lee was from Virginia, yeah. But yeah, um, so so he was a conservative Southern Democrat. So he was basically a Dixiecrat, which is kind of like the term people use for that. It was mainly associated with uh, Strom Thurmond. He ran under the Dixiecrat Party, which was uh, he, he ran under because he didn't like how the Democratic ticket of uh, Harry Truman was thought he was too supportive of civil rights. Uh, and right. First, yeah. Ever since I, although it's not the first episode of this podcast, because I just recently revamped it from its previous incarnation, and I, I haven't, and the old the episodes from its previous incarnation are still part of it. The first episode I did in this kind of new incarnation of my podcast was about Strom Thurmond's filibuster of the Civil Rights Act of 1957. So, yeah, that's something you should listen right. to. Right. Oh, I think, I think I'd heard about that. He, like, didn't he speak for, like, a crazy old bad time? He speak for more than 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah, he had to do some crazy stuff to actually do it. But, yeah, he, Virgil Goode was basically one of the last Dixiecrats, um, and he was very conservative despite being a Democrat. Um, and although he was, he, he, he was loyal to his party, like at the time, saying that he would never support a Republican. That's a lot of thing with a lot of these Southern Democrats. They were like super conservative, but also they would never vote for a Republican. That was, and and then uh, that was until uh, Virgil Goode became a Republican. Um, I mean, it was already enough that he was one of a very small amount of Democrats in Congress who voted in favor of impeaching Bill Clinton 
and he also was very anti-abortion and very, and very anti-gun control. But just like Strom Thurmond, Virgil Good, despite initially like promising to never support a Republican, became one um, after a brief period of serving as an independent and caucusing with the Republicans. Now, near the end of his tenure, Virgil Good was known for his Islamophobia um, because in 2007 he voted against a resolution that opposed. It was just, it wasn't like an actual measure, but it's a resolution like voicing uh, opposition to an increase in the amount of American troops in Iraq. And his rationale for voting against it, saying that, was that he didn't want to, quote, aid and assist the Islamic jihadists who want the green flag of the crescent and the star to wave over the capital of the United States and over the White House of this country. Also claiming that radical Muslims wanted to take over the world and put in, and put in Muhammad we trust on American currency. Wow. Yeah. That kind of ignores the fact that if you... The, what, what we have on American currency is in God we trust. So right. if, if Muslims want yeah. to change it, it would be in Allah we trust, not in Muhammad we trust. And that's another Muhammad thing that, prophet, yeah. Yeah, a, a lot of these like right-wing like Islamophobic people often like freak out when someone like uses the word Allah, saying we believe in God, not Allah. Allah is right. God. They're the exact same figure. Christianity and Islam follow the same religious model. Like, like I, you can find videos of like, like Arab Christians are a thing. They they call uh, God Allah when they're speaking their native language. Right. Uh, it's because because Allah is literally God in yeah, Arabic. Yeah. The, the, you can find like videos online of like Arabic readings of the Christian Bible where they say Allah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, Virgil Good should not be sharing his opinion on Islam if he doesn't know anything about it. But yeah, that wasn't yeah. the worst thing though. He, he also in two thousand six, uh, Minnesota Minnesota's fifth district elected the first ever Muslim to Congress, uh, Keith Ellison, who is an African American raised as a Christian, who eventually converted to Islam as an adult. Uh, he is currently the Attorney General of Minnesota, uh, and his successor is Ilhan Omar, who's also a Muslim, but. Uh, before her, it was him who also faced similar Islamophobic abuse, uh, and during and, and he gained some notability because during his swearing-in ceremony, uh, because most members of Congress they are sworn in on uh, a Bible, but he but Keith Ellison didn't swear get sworn in on a Bible, he did it on the Quran, um, and uh, and yeah. Uh, it got him a lot of Islamophobic abuse from right-wingers, but Virgil Good was a special case. Uh, he released a, One of Good's constituents released a letter that he received from Good about Ellison's plans to take the oath of office on a Quran. The letter reads, and keep in mind, just so it's not confusion, this isn't the constituent who wrote this. This is Virgil Good, the congressman from Virginia who wrote this. He wrote it in reply, replying to a constituent? I think so. So yeah, here, here, here it says, this plus multiple corruption controversies led to the very narrow. Wait, wait never mind. I, I that was that was a mistake. I actually, I actually read. Uh, that, that was reading part of my uh, info. Um, what, what, okay, the letter reads: When I raise my hand to take the oath on swearing in day, I will have the Bible in my hand, my other hand. I do not subscribe to using the Quran in any way. The Muslim representative from Minnesota was elected by the voters of that district. And if American citizens don't wake up and adopt the Virgil Good position on immigration, there will be likely many more Muslims elected to office and demanding the use of the Quran. So yeah, I, 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 I do appreciate that that constituent released that, because that's not the kind of thing people should just say and not have it be revealed. Yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah, people need to know that 
there are people in Congress who say stuff like that, because there probably are a lot, especially now, there are probably lots of people who say more stuff than that. Uh, so yeah, but the thing is, all of this like insane reaction to him, to Keith Ellison taking the oath of office on the Quran was kind of stupid, because he did that in the most American way possible. The specific copy of the Quran he used was a copy that was entirely in English, it was not Arabic, it was an English translation, and this very copy was once owned by Thomas Jefferson. So really, yeah, he was. That's crazy. Yeah, he was. He took, did his swearing in ceremony with the Quran in the most American way possible. Probably because of the Quran. It's weird to think about Thomas Jefferson reading the Quran. Yeah, but I mean, it's. I mean, it, it, he uh, probably studied it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So there was a. So yeah, there was there was all of this like big bigotry and many corruption controversies led to Virgil Good narrowly losing in his congressional seat in two thousand eight to Democrat Tom Perriello. So in twenty twelve, a few years after he left Congress, he was the Constitution Party's nominee for president, and his running mate was Jim Clymer, who's now the current chair of the Constitution Party. So despite the fact that Virgil Good supported the Iraq War and supported the Patriot Act, which were not and quite passionately and. Uh, Despite that, the anti-Iraq War Constitution Party welcomed him with open arms, unlike Alan Keyes, who they... I mean, Alan Keyes deserves to be treated as a bad person, but still. Uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, despite his awful behavior in Congress and on the campaign trail, uh, Good's campaign was actually pretty generic for a Constitution Party candidate. He was even, like, talking... He was even kind of, like, moderating and just prioritizing the, like, like fiscal, like, ultra-conservative ideology over, like, social ultra-conservative ideologies, talking about, like, uh, I, I don't like taxes. Um, and most of the attention his campaign got was not for being racist, but just for people who thought he was, like, a spoiler candidate who would take votes away from Mitt Romney. Um, right. But, yeah, so we're almost at, we're about to be at the end of this, actually, but, yeah. So this, so, so yeah, there, there wasn't really much to note about uh, Virgil Good's campaign. Uh, he lost. That's one thing to note. Um, but, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to finish this episode off by making it known that in 2016, their candidate was the 2008 vice presidential nominee, Daryl Castle. Um, and in 2020, they nominated former coal company owner, Don Blankenship. Um, nobody paid attention to his campaign for president under the Constitution Party in 2020. Like, nobody. Like, the, I tried looking for stuff about it, and, and I was able to find, like, some, some like, middle school chill kids from St. Louis did like an actual interview with him and it had like that's, that's it and it had like a total of 200 youtube views wow. uh like so so yeah but he actually did run for political office before uh and was much more notable that was actually made it, it was like on talk like like com comedians talk shows it was on the trevor noah was talking about it stephen colbert john oliver they were all talking about it he ran for senate in west virginia which is very coal-obsessed state against Joe Manchin, the, the like, endangered Democrat there from what is now an extremely Republican state. Yeah, he ran in the Republican primary and released two ads that went very viral where he made racist statements about the family of Mitch McConnell's Chinese-American wife, Elaine Chao, referring to her family as China people and called Mitch McConnell Cocaine Mitch. Wow. Um, yes. It's it, I, I, apparently it's about like stuff about how he thinks that like uh, apparently there's like some cocaine controversy involved with Lane Chow's family, but yeah. Funnily enough, uh, after he called Mitch McConnell cocaine Mitch, and after he lost the primary, uh, Mitch McConnell's super PAC made a Twitter post of the logo for the TV show Narcos, 
with uh, Mitch McConnell's face edited onto Pablo Escobar's, saying like, "Good," ha like just basically saying like, "Yeah, I, I, we, you, you lost the primary," something like that. Uh, what a roast! Yeah, but um, I can't since I, I this isn't a visual thing. I mean, I just want to say like I'll probably send it to Kiki and Will after this. He released these two ads that were they were just hilariously bad. Um. Also, the other thing I should note is that before he ran for Senate and later for president, he served time in prison because of his negligent managing of his coal mine led to the death of 29 miners in an explosion. Dude, that's... Yeah. I mean, he killed 29 miners. No, I... Well, do you... I mean, coal miners, not... Do you think... I'm yeah. Not, <laughs> they're, they're all adults. But also, this does seem like the kind of person who would employ children in like uh to, to do hard labor in a coal mine but as far as that seemed like something he would do but as far as i've read he hasn't done that it was pretty notable yes. um in fact i mentioned the behind the bastards episode on charles coke and the book he uses the book the host of behind the bastards robert evans uses a source for that episode actually did mention don blankenship and his and his like corrupt practices that kill people but that i mean his campaign was so unnotable um, basically, all I can say is that the Constitution Party was barely relevant. It had a few couple moments where it seemed like it could be a thing, especially the, when they became a major party in Colorado, but they're pretty irrelevant now. Um, nowadays, the far right is now more trying to like work themselves further into the ranks of the Republican Party rather than kind of just like running under a third party with no chance of winning. Uh, so, yeah. Um, that's the Constitution Party. Wow. Yeah. Final thoughts, guys? I I definitely think it's interesting, like, um, all the, like, sectors of, like, Christianity that, like, it went through. Like, there's definitely, like, an alliance there between, like, all, like, there's, like, a Baptist guy. There's, like, an Episcopalian guy. There was, like, a, what, oh, an evangelical guy. And it's I think it's interesting, like, yeah, it's mostly evangelical. I think it's interesting, like, though now... The modern far right, yeah, and there's like an alliance between like Catholicism and sort of evangelical Protestants. Yeah, I think like back in the day, right? Um, there used to be like a shit ton of anti-Catholic bigotry. Yeah, like people. There was this one guy like during like World War Two or right before that, the guy who ran against uh, Herbert Hoover. Al Smith. Thought that, yeah, well, the one of the one of the guys who was Catholic. Yeah, it was Al Smith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They thought he was digging a tunnel. To, uh, to uh, the Vatican because he was Catholic and he would like take orders from the Pope underneath the secret ground tunnel. Yep, yeah. But nowadays, like, there are like tons of Nazis and stuff who are Catholic, who are, and so it's like, it's just a weird how that changed over time. Yeah, but funnily enough, the, like, since Al Smith lost in a landslide, the only region that he actually did well in was the Deep South, where like evangelical Protestants are like a large amount of people there. So yeah, the, he, he actually did do well with, in, he, he, the, the, the only states he won were the ones with a large evangelical population. But yeah, oh, okay. Kiki, do you have any final thoughts about the Constitution Party? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the thing you said at the end about how, like, at the end of the day, like, now the Constitutional Party is a lot smaller because all these people with the same beliefs and values just sort of merged into the Republican Party. Yeah. I think that says a lot about the Republican Party today. Yeah. Um, and how, like, it's sort of split between these, like, like total like retrumplicans yeah. and these never trumpers and i think 
that split, like the people who are pro-Trump are often like evangelicals and very religious and oftentimes people with very radical ideas. And then I think that's a big part of the problem within the Republican Party. And that's why there's so much infighting is because you have a lot of these more moderate people that are fighting with people who have similar ideologies to the Constitution Party. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, and I think that says a lot about American politics. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, more moderate, a better way of saying it is less extreme. Because, I mean, yeah. not that, like, very few moderates are allowed. <laughs> yeah, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't call them moderates in, when you actually think about it, because yeah. a moderate between being crazy and very crazy. Yeah. But it's, yeah, yeah. definitely, I also definitely think it shows, like, how within a two-party, because within, within a two-party system, you can make so much more change where you sort of try to work in the party than working around it. Yeah. Because now you can see like like those beliefs that like like just like twenty years ago like weren't winning, weren't popular, and then Donald Trump comes along and now that stuff is like mainstream talking points. Yeah. So it definitely shows how uh, sort of sort of like uh, working kind of working in working into the party because then when they start to become the main beliefs of the party people like members of the party will like switch their beliefs to fit their party if that makes sense yeah okay if they shouldn't do they should be more critical but yeah okay well it's been great doing this thanks guys for coming on uh i wrote this a while ago and it was pretty grueling i've been trying to get it done so thanks for letting me finally get it done of course yeah no happy to help okay bye guys all right bye bye